Hello and welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we're going to be talking to men who stare at orchids and hearing yet another one of those wonderful readings from Zoe Devlin. First up, a bit of housekeeping. Our June Herbology Hunt spotter sheets for children are live on our site and social media feeds, so do please get out hunting with your kids or pupils over the next few weeks to try to find them all. We're also changing the way we do ID requests. If you find a wildflower that you don't recognise, please post a picture of it on Twitter with the hashtag wildflowerid and someone will get back to you with suggestions. And if you're the sort of person who just loves identifying mystery plants, please do follow that hashtag and muck in. Wildflower Hour relies totally on the goodwill of our community. Now, speaking of goodwill, is it ever possible to get to an end of one of Zoe Devlin's blooming marvellous book extracts without feeling full of joy and warmth? The answer is no, of course. So here she is with June's instalment. The day I found a Kerry lily is still remembered vividly by my son Nick and daughter Petra. They tell me that they were commanded to get down and have a really close look at this little beauty because they might never, ever see one again. They were somewhat unimpressed, but they tell me that to this day they remember dropping to their knees and gazing at the plant in dumb obedience. They even recall its silvery white colour. This was in the early 1970s. We were in Derry Nan in County Kerry and taking a walk across Abbey Island, a piece of land that is only ever cut off when a very high tide occurs. I had been studying wildflowers for many years and had a good idea of what I had found. My excitement was mighty. I was without a camera, but promised myself I would return someday with one. Fast forward a mere 30 years. Petra and her husband, Mike, joined Pete and me for a week in Sneem, not far from Derrynan. I mentioned quite casually that I wouldn't mind having a little hunt for the Kerry Lily. There might even be a small prize for whoever found it. They took the bait. We spent a bit of time poring over images of the wildflower species in various books, trying to get mental pictures of what we were looking for. Then we split into two pairs and headed off over the island. Within five minutes, my mobile phone displayed a photograph of the white six-petaled flower. Petra and Mike had found them and directed us to the spot where they were plentiful. They had won the prize. No washing up for them for the rest of the week. The Kerry lily has to be seen to be believed. It is dazzling and gorgeous. It has silvery white sparkling petals surrounding fuzzy hairy stamens which are crowned by golden anthers. It is one of our Lusitanian species and a rare protected Kingdom County jewel found nowhere else in these isles. In 2005, when roadworks were being carried out close to another County Kerry spot where it grew, the decision was made to halt the works temporarily while two metre screens were constructed to protect the plant from road spray and any other disturbances. Let's hear it for Kerry County Council, such a great example of a commitment to cherish one of our precious species. Thanks, Zoe. Another wildflower half-hour regular is Leif Bersweden, better known as the orchid hunter. Leif spent his gap year trying to find all 52 species of native orchids in Britain and Ireland, and he's now doing a PhD focused on, that's right, orchids. 
As part of his studies, Leif has recently spent some time in France, staring at orchids. It's a hard life. He's explained for podcast listeners what on earth he has been up to. Hi everyone, my name is Leif and I'm a PhD student working on orchids. And today I'm going to be telling you a bit about what I'm doing and my recent trip to France to collect data. So I'm working on a group of four orchids called Man Orchid, Lady Orchid, Military Orchid and Monkey Orchid. Uh, They can all be found here in England and also across mainland Europe. Now, all orchids have three petals and three sepals. And of the three petals, one generally looks very different to the other two. We call this one the lip of the flower. And so the first thing you notice with the four orchids that I'm working on is that the lip of each flower kind of looks like um, a little human. Uh, They've sort of got arms and legs. And as such, they're referred to as being anthropomorphic. And at first glance, they all look very different from one another. Uh, The lip of the man orchid, for example, is yellow uh, and often outlined with this really nice brown or burgundy. Lady orchid flowers generally have a white lip surrounded by deep reddish petals and sepals. Uh, The lip of the monkey orchid is white with these uh, sort of very fine purple appendages and a long tail. Uh, This one's particularly 3D with um, the inflorescence being the sort of tangle of limbs. And lastly, the military orchid is similar in coloration to the monkey orchid, but has uh, much broader, flatter limbs. And so they're all they're all very different. Uh, And anyone could sit down with a very simple botanical key and be able to identify them. But when these species grow together, they literally can't keep their hands off each other. And unlike most species, uh, they don't pay any attention to rules about who's allowed to sleep with whom. Um, And the different species reproduce with each other. These interspecies partnerships result in intermediate offspring, which are called hybrids, that kind of look half like one of the parental orchid species and half like the other. Um, I guess it's kind of like you've merged the two species and the resulting plant has characters of both uh, both parent orchids. Now where hybridisation events such as this occur, uh, it often leads to the, the build-up of these large populations of hybrid orchids. And some hybrids appear to be sterile, uh, while preliminary data suggests that others are able to reproduce both with each other and with their parents. So very simply, you can kind of imagine it like this. The two parent species are at either end, and the hybrids occupy the space in between. And I guess it's it's the sort of spectrum, right? So um, some will be perfect intermediates, uh, some will look more like parent A, and some will look more like parent B. Uh, and if the hybrids can truly reproduce with each other and with their parents, then genes will be able to move from one parent to the other via the hybrid. But I'll come back to this in a sec. So my PhD then, in one sentence, is uh, I'm trying to work out why these four orchids, uh, which look very different, remain as four separate species, rather than just merging into one big hybrid superspecies, if you like, uh, despite this flow of genes and DNA sequences between them via the hybrids. Now, these orchids can all be found here in England, and they're all flowering right now. Uh, Military and monkey orchids are extremely rare and can only be found in a handful of locations, Uh, while lady and man orchids, um, though commoner, are still very localised species uh, that are more more or less restricted to Kent and Surrey, Uh, with exceptions though, particularly with the man orchid. Now, I just spent the last two weeks in the south of France collecting data where all four species are much, much commoner, and as a result, they can often be found growing in the same place. 
Um, and where they do, hybridization is occurring left, right and centre. There are absolutely loads of hybrids. Uh, some populations contained all four species and up to three different hybrids. So I guess that this kind of big genetic mix of, uh, of different species. And so for the past two weeks, I've been driving around the south of France, hunting down populations of orchids. Um, now this obviously sounds idyllic, uh, and from a botanical point of view, it was just utterly incredible. I have never seen so many orchids. Um, I was just so impressed by the sheer volume of species that are considered rare here in Britain, just all growing together in the same place. Just in one field, for example, there were early spider orchids, lady, military, monkey, man, burnt orchids, uh, alongside sword-leaved hellebrines. It was just like it was just like looking at one of those pages in an orchid guide where all the rarities are clustered together, except here it was right in front of me in real life. This is just amazing. But despite um, getting slightly distracted by all the other plants, uh, the purpose of my trip was actually to study the hybrid between lady and military orchids. And one of my jobs was to collect the flowers, uh, to, and I wanted to study the shape of the lip, because uh, I wanted to understand how the hybrid differs from its parents, and whether it more closely resembles the lady orchid or the military orchid. I also collected samples for DNA analysis back in the lab at Kew, uh, and this involves cutting a small bit of the inflorescence and storing it in a small plastic bag full of silica gel, uh, the same stuff you get in small packets in shoeboxes. Uh, this dries out the plant very, very quickly and preserves the DNA for extraction back in the lab. Um, I'd actually prepared hundreds of these bags of silica prior to flying out, but it was only as I was walking into the departures lounge that I realised I was about to take two suitcases through the airport containing hundreds of bags filled with white powder, um, which could have been extremely awkward, but uh, luckily I managed to escape without any questions. Anyway, as I've already mentioned, uh, my project has this really strong genetic element, and you can find out so many different things from the DNA. And what I'd like to do is try and identify genes that are involved in preventing these species from merging. Um, and I'd also like to look for signs of genes moving from one parent to another. So, in this case, um, imagine a hybrid between a lady orchid and a military orchid. Now, in very, very simple terms, half of its DNA is that of a lady orchid, and the other half is that of a military orchid. Imagine then that this hybrid is fertile, and it reproduces with a lady orchid. Now the DNA of the resulting offspring here, again in very simple terms, would be 75% lady and 25% military. If this hybrid then reproduces with another lady orchid, then the military orchid DNA would be diluted yet further. And if this continues sort of repetitively, um, always reproducing back with the lady orchid, uh, you'd eventually end up with plants that look like lady orchids and genetically are 99% lady orchid, but they have a little bit of DNA from a military orchid. And in this way, genes can move from one species to another via this uh, repetitive reproduction um, between a hybrid uh, and a lady orchid, for example. And we know this, this occurs in these orchids, uh, but what we don't know is um, how frequent it is or how widespread it is, or whether all the hybrids are fertile or not, um, and whether this process can occur between all four species. 
What we do know, though, is that all sex hybrid combinations between these four species are possible. Uh, and in fact, I was lucky enough to find all sex while I was in France, though some are much commoner than others, which is quite interesting, something to look into. Uh, my favourite one was actually the one between man and military orchids, because uh, the lip is this sort of really rich uh, pink colour, uh, like a military orchid, uh, but it was in the shape of a man orchid, which is just, it was just so stunning, it was just so cool. Um, and it was so intensely coloured as well. And in fact, this was something uh, that I noticed that spanned all the hybrids. Um, their their colour was just so, so rich, um, the kind that a digital camera really struggles to capture. Here in the UK, the species are all generally rare, as I've said, and therefore sites where they grow together are extremely limited. Uh, there have been occasional sightings of hybrids, uh, for example, between man and monkey orchids in Kent and Hampshire, uh, although the, the natural occurrence of the latter is highly dubious, given how far away the nearest monkey orchid population is. However, there is one site called Hartslock in rural Oxfordshire, where hybridisation is rampant between monkey and lady orchids. And these hybrids are stunning plants. They're just this vivid pink. They're really, really tall and full of um, sort of teenage vigour, if you like. Uh, but the occurrence of lady orchids at the site is widely believed to be a result of human activity. So there's this debate about whether or not the hybrids should be protected, uh, as there, there is a chance that they could have a negative impact on the monkey orchid population, which, as I've already said, is extremely rare here in Britain. Uh, if the hybrids are fertile, then potentially there could be reproduction going on with the monkey orchids, uh, which would dilute the native monkey orchid gene pool with lady orchid DNA, um, which potentially could be a concern. However, to make things even more confusing, the population of monkey orchids actually contains DNA from military orchids, uh, which is the result of a hybridisation event in the past when these two species grew together in the Thames Valley. So they aren't technically pure monkey orchids anyway. And the plants there are tiny, they're weak, uh, albeit still beautiful, uh, which probably signifies a reduced gene pool. So actually, these monkey orchids might actually benefit from an injection of healthy orchis DNA from the ladies via the hybrids. Uh, but to date, there's no evidence of this going on. There's no evidence of gene flow in this population. But it's a really, really interesting case study. So... My research will hopefully improve our understanding of hybridisation and have benefits for the conservation of these orchids, both here in Britain and across Europe, uh, with Hartslock being a prime example. And, you know, it's this, it's this fascinating story to tell. It's all very exciting. Uh, the last two weeks in France have generated yet more questions, which is fun, but actually extremely problematic, uh, given how much I really have to do. Uh, and it's yielded plenty of samples for me to take back to the lab. So watch this space for hopefully some interesting results regarding these four wonderful orchid species. And do get in touch. Do let me know if you have any questions, because I'd uh, love to discuss it with you. Thanks, Leif. And while some people turn their obsession with orchids into an entire professional life, others make it their personal life. One such is Alan Jeffrey, who lives in Cumbria and has been cultivating a wildflower meadow, which includes a number of stunning wild orchids for many years. I had the pleasure of visiting this garden and asked Alan what he was doing. My name's Alan Jeffrey, and our base is Santon House, Santon 
Hormrug, which is in the end of the Wasdale Valley. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's a wonderful, massive wildflower meadow and pond. And you've got the fells all around you. But down here, it's so peaceful. And one of the most beautiful things about it is the range of orchids that are right around us here. In fact, we're standing in one of the, the most orchidaceous bits of the whole of the, the garden. Tell me what we can see right here. Well, you've got several species. It's all based on dactylizers. We've got Elata, we've got Fushi, we've got Malacata, and various hybrids. Some, some of the hybrids are massive as well. There's one which, there's a couple which are over a foot right in front of us. Yeah, and they can grow very tall. It's been a very dry season this year, so they're shorter, but I have had them almost up to thigh height, uh, which is pretty incredible. So the conditions here are particularly good for growing these orchids, and that gave us the idea to try and expand the species range, and we're now up to 20 species, and we're going to get more from specialist growers. And the idea is to try and propagate off these orchids and just expand and then they can go to other places to start new colonies off because these orchids are reducing across the land and it's due to land management and lack of habitat being cut at the wrong time of year all contributes to the demise of our wonderful native orchids. And... Just tell me what this area was like when you first arrived here. You've been here for nearly 40 years? Yeah, but it's only been converted from a, a ryegrass field. In Since 2002, we put the pond in. So it was a ryegrass field with the pond at the bottom of the field there in the corner. And then I thought... I need to naturalise the pond, so I've got uh, native species, Medisweet, Flag Iris, Nymphus alba, the uh, wild um, lily, and um, lots of other stuff, put it in the pond, and then I thought we'll have some fish in there, and we had to go through planning to get the pond built, and uh, we had to register with DEFRA to get uh, permissions to put fish in. And then the next stage from that, we need um, wild habitat round to entice natural food for the fish, various flies and insects. And, and that pond is seething with insects today. In fact, there's almost a blue shimmer on it because there are so many damselflies mating as well. Yeah and uh, it's just gone from there so what we did first we scraped about 40 tonne of topsoil off and why did you do that to reduce nitrogen the big enemy to all our wildflowers is nitrogen nitrogen is the biggest enemy and it doesn't go away quickly takes many years to deplete out of the soil and you'd have to take the grass off to stop re-nitrogen uh, into the land so 
we did an experiment and uh, planted it up with a mix of corn annuals for a splash of colour the first year and then the perennials which would and fine grasses which would take over. And then since then I've just rotivated areas over and planted a few and then I do plug planting. So not all of the plants here are were here to begin with. You've you've imported some There was nothing. There was only ryegrass in this field. It was totally ryegrass, which isn't very interesting. No, and, and now it looks I mean you've put so much hard work into this because it really does look at home. It doesn't look like anything's been planted. Everything looks very happy here and natural. Yeah, that's it. And it's just a demonstration of what you can achieve on a time scale and by doing different things, what the effect is. You can clearly see the difference in the flora and fauna where the scrapes are to outside the scrapes. There's a beautiful black cap singing. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And what? Tell me, tell me about the species of orchids that you've got here. We're obviously standing in front of lots of dactylorizers and hybrids between the different dactylorizer species, but it's not just dactylorizers that you've got here. No, we've got the greater butterfly, which I had out in the open, but I've discovered it actually does far better in the dappled shade of the edge of a wood so that's the next challenge is finding the conditions that particularly suit the species and they're all different so by experimenting really we just find the best place you notice the twig blade under the uh, willow there is doing very well um, it's very very happy so we'll have a colony of blade. we've got the greater and the lesser butterfly orchids and then we've introduced European species like the leopard spotted orchid the western marsh orchid the alpine orchid and uh, this over there is the um, Malacata alba, which is the white moors, moorland orchid. We've got the ordinary moorland orchid, so they all live happily together in this um, corner of the field. And the Dactyliza fushi is rapidly spread, spreading out, and it won't be long till there are tens of thousands of them by the projection of how they've increased in only a few years. Now, I don't really need to ask you why you bother doing this because I can tell, firstly, from the way this meadow looks that it's incredibly beautiful, but also from talking to you that it makes you very happy. And I suspect people listening to this podcast will want to know how they could do something, perhaps not on the scale that you've done it because you have got a a really big meadow but if they had a a lawn that they got a bit bored of and they actually wanted to see some colour and some bees moving amongst it how do you get orchids or other wildflowers established in your garden? Well the problem is um, you have to get them from a bonafide source it's not right to go out into areas where they grow and remove them and it's illegal so that's a a total no-no but um, there are nurseries on the internet where you can buy at the right time of year 
most of the native orchids. Uh, they're very expensive, but the best value one, without a doubt, is Dactyliza fushi. You get a lovely range of colour. They're less temperamental than, say, the bee orchid or the pyramidal. And, and Dactyliza fushi is um, the common spotted orchid. The common orchid. spotted yeah. orchid, yeah. But it, uh, I don't think that common should be in the name anymore there. <laughs> not for any wildflower really because no. actually it's worth pointing out that though this meadow is vast we've actually lost 97% of our wildflower meadows in this country so this is an amazing thing that you've done in and of itself because you're restoring some of that yeah it, it was just uh, like the pond uh, as a uh, one of the, my dreams was to have a pond with fishing. I would have been happy to have a few goldfish or <laughs> even just um, tadpoles and things. It's maybe uh, a childhood thing because um, that's what we used to do as kids, go around and collect tadpoles and fish and potter around rivers around this area because there is quite a lot of um, river round here. And I just decided to go down the route, but obviously you have to get planning permission and all of for, this. For the pond, you don't have to get planning permission for a yeah. meadow, do you? No, <laughs> no, no. the meadow, um, it's, it's just a matter of doing it. I would say on a small scale, the most successful way would be to plug plant, you know. And, and how to keep how do you keep the grass from taking over everything? Because that's a a problem that lots of people struggle with when they decide to leave their lawn alone. That it just turns into sort of waist height grass. Well, you've got to cut it yearly. And what time of year? I would say maybe August September, depending on the year and depending what's in there. But basically, you want your flowers to seed, and then. You can cut the lawn and and rake the grass up and that raking action puts the seed into the ground and the the will germinate. But basically you want to remove grass to reduce nitrogen. If you cut it and leave the grass on the ground, it rots down and puts nitrogen in. So the quick way is to cut it, remove the grass throughout the year to weaken it as fast and then the secret weapon is to add um, the seed of yellow rattle because yellow rattle is a grass parasite and it extracts nutrient from the grass and weakens it so that's um, one of the great tools of nature is the uh, yellow rattle and once your grass is weak then you can plug plant finer wildflowers and I mean what would be nicer than some orchids, a bit of toad flax, a bit of betony, some birds for trefle and the list goes on and on. So perhaps um, in the 21st century betony and birds for trefoil is taking over from pansies and wallflowers of the 20th century and they do take less work don't they i mean you do have to mow the meadow you have to sow the yellow rattle but actually compared to bedding plants and desperately exactly, trying to get yeah. dandelions out of a lawn yeah and and under the under the term of a, a nature area 
It is what it is, and if you have a dandelion, it isn't a crime in the nature medway. <laughs> it's a it? good thing for the bees as it, well. <laughs> it is, and um, dandelion leaves can be added to a salad as well. And, uh, mm, they're lovely, and chickens love them as yeah, well, if you're yeah, a chicken keeper. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I, I could talk to you for several podcasts about what you've done with this meadow but it really is stunning and there will be pictures of it on the wildflower hour website as well so that other people can enjoy quite what an amazing thing has been created here thank you you're welcome alan jeffrey on his orchid obsession and that's all for this week don't forget to join in with wildflower hour between 8 and 9 p.m every sunday on twitter facebook and instagram happy wildflower hunting